0: Well, good morning, everyone. I've heard so much about this church. It is great to finally be here with you. As as Todd said, I know Brian was connected with you guys, and Brian came out here, and then Gideon, and then Matt Kopp, and Dave Temple. And so it's finally my turn. Um, You've met about three fourths of our team, which is uh, very unique because most of the churches I go to only know me or the churches know the different people and so you guys kind of connect with a lot of us and so this is this is great i can talk about our teammates i can talk about what's going on there and you uh you know them all Um, but before i get going here let me just say thank you for sending todd to come visit us um gosh it was about six months ago right before christmas Um, That was a tremendous, tremendous blessing to us. Uh, Our school really survives off of the, you know, we don't have enough people out there to to really pull off a full school. And we survived by pastors coming and helping us teach. And he was a tremendous blessing to us. He helped out incredibly in the classroom, uh, stirred up a little bit of controversy in a good way, in a good way that got us talking with a lot of our students about some issues. And um, it was great to have him in our home and just get to know him better as well. So thank you for sending him to us. Thank you uh, for, I know you're talking about sending another group of people this year. Uh, that's just a tremendous blessing to us. So thanks for partnering with us in that way. I do have some slides here. i just can tell you a little bit about Malawi before, before I preach. So this is my family. I think you've seen this picture. Um, you know me, my wife Bethany on my right there. Uh, Caleb is my oldest in front of me. He's 10 years old. Titus is in front of my wife there, and he's eight. And then Mariah, my daughter, is six. And uh, we have been in Malawi for just over four years. It's home now. My family sends you greetings. Uh, Unfortunately, my wife uh, was unable to make it today. She did fly back to the States with me, and uh, she's on to Houston now for some medical exams. My children are in Africa, so we're kind of all in different places today. But uh, they wanted to wish their, their greetings to you as well. So we serve in Malawi, and you've probably seen these maps and know this, which is good, because usually when I say Malawi, people say, oh, like the Hawaiian island, and it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> Africa, third world, very different. Uh, it's a small country in the southern region of Africa there. It's covered by a large body of water, a big lake. Um, this lake is very well known. If you've ever heard of Malawi, that's why, because of the lake. Uh, so here is my trick for you, all right? This, this usually helps, because most people have never heard of Malawi, but you have, but this this is this is, way, this is my trick for you this morning, all right? When you see water, all right? So you go wash your hands, you drink out of a water bottle, you uh, take a shower, you see water. Once you take the W in water, and you turn that upside down to get an M for Malawi, all right? You you got this. You can handle this. You see water, you think Malawi, and you pray for us. Can you do that? All right. We'll quiz you on this next time we come back. Maybe I'll ask Tony to quiz you next week. See water, think Malawi, and pray for us. Malawi is a a third-world country. Most people live in uh, one-room mud huts, no water or electricity. And uh, that's that's the makeup. Um, There's cities and there are villages. Most people live in the village with just nothing. And then you come to a city, and there's a lot of development. It almost looks like a first-world country until you live there a little bit. Um, and so there's just a lot of uh, different experiences there. You know, you can be in the city the whole time and feel almost in America, but then as soon as you leave, it rapidly drops off into village with no water, electricity, and uh, the needs, there's needs throughout the country, but to really understand the needs, the spiritual need, you've got to take a quick church history lesson, and that's, that's what these slides are. 1891, the British establish... Uh, the colony of Naziland, which is what Malawi was before it was Malawi. Uh, the mainline churches come in and are started by the missionaries, right? With the colonialists, come in the missionaries. And the mainline churches are your denominational churches. So you have your Presbyterian church, you have your Anglican church, your Baptist church. Um, all of these churches get established with the, the colonialists. Um, the missionaries come in and do that. In the 60s then, here's my, this is my engineering background at work right there. <laughs> Ooh, you impressed, PowerPoint animation. Um, In the 60s, Naziland gets its independence. It's a a peaceful handoff. There's no uh, revolution or anything like that. But Malawi gets its own independence. They rename themselves Malawi. That's the African name. And at this time, when the colonialists start leaving the country, then the locals in the churches expect the missionaries to go as well. They kind of give them the boot. And this really threw off the missionaries. They were not expecting this. They were not ready to hand the churches off. And so what you have is a lot of churches that have leaders where the leaders are immature. The, they weren't ready to be leaders, and uh, they really go on these power grabs, and they start uh, doing all sorts of things, which I think I have up here in a minute we'll get to. Um, so it's, it's not a good situation, the denominational churches. In the meantime, you have all these charismatic uh, missionaries that come in. You have a, a second wave of churches, the independent churches, which are really the charismatic churches, and they're started by all these missionaries that come in at this time. And that's uh, So you have really two sets of churches, the denominational churches and the charismatic ones. So in the 70s, we're not that far back here, if you're catching this, right? It's all very recent. In the 70s, then the mainline churches, the denominational churches with the immature leaders, they start excommunicating people, right? They really go on a power grab, and they're trying to get rid of anybody they can who stands in their way, and they excommunicate people all over the place, and for, of all things, they, they excommunicate people for being born again, right? Which, if you think about this, what this does is it starts a mass migration. All the Christians are leaving the denominational churches, and they're going to the charismatic churches, All right. So your charismatic churches tend to be your better churches, uh, the mainline churches, they clamp down, and they basically start saying, if you're born here, you have to stay here. You can't transfer membership. You can't leave. And in a culture where community is king, where uh, you never act in your own interest, um, shame is huge, you do not leave your church. You do not go against the flow in that regard. And so if you're born into a denominational church, doesn't matter how bad it is, you've got to stay there. Um, and then you have things that are exciting, things that are associated with the independent churches. Right? So this is things like um, contemporary worship songs, all-night prayer meetings, but also things like speaking in tongues and prophecy. All of those things become associated with true Christianity, because right? this is where the Christians are. And the things in the, the mainline churches, the, the traditional things like liturgies and robes, but also things like baptism and communion, those are rejected because that's, that's all dead orthodoxy. Right, so this really sets the stage for Malawi to understand the charismatic church. This is the better church, right? You've got to understand the African worldview. And so you've got God who is a good God who is trying to bless people. That's what he does. He's just trying to send down blessing. And, and what they mean by that is material blessing. He wants to give you money. He wants to give you health. He wants to give you a nice new home. But the problem is you got this spirit world in between with angels and demons and ancestors and all this stuff going on, good and evil fighting, and it blocks up, it mucks up that blessing that God is trying to give to you. So the way you fix this, you go see the witch doctor, and the witch doctor has this breakthrough. That's kind of a key word in Malawi, breakthrough. He gets through the spirit world, clears it all up, and now that blessing can get to you that you want. Well, the charismatic church, go ahead and click. Just kind of come along and baptize all of this thinking with Christian language. And so the Abusa, the, the man of God, the pastor, is really just a witch doctor. He's someone who controls the supernatural. And that's why you go see him because I have a problem and hey, the Abusa, he fixes it all, he clears up the spirit world, boom! Now I get my blessing. That is church in Malawi. That's why people go to church. That is true Christianity in their minds. Alright? So go ahead and... so the. Uh, The pastor is not a preacher of God's Word. He's a priest who delivers blessing. Our greatest need is not forgiveness of sin, um, but breakthrough. They want to break through the spirit world so God uh, can bless us. Most people cannot articulate the fact that Christ died for my sins. I interviewed 30-something pastors, uh, 50 pastors or so, for admission into our MDiv, and I would say... Less than a handful, maybe three, could articulate the gospel. They could say that, Christ died for my sins. But most of the pastors couldn't even say that. Um, uh, the blood is blood of Christ is not an atoning sacrifice for our sin. It's a magical incantation. If you chant it enough times, then it'll do anything. I, I went and visited this one pastor, and he uh, got some bad news while we were talking. His wife was sick. And he just broke into almost a chant. He was praying, you know, but... By the blood of Jesus, I command her to get better. By the blood of Jesus, may her sickness go away. By the blood of Jesus, he just went on and on and on. And I finally, after about 10 minutes, just excused myself because he was not stopping. But that's, uh, that's, that's the pastor. That's the church in Malawi. So you see things like this, right? Winner's Chapel. This is the home, home of breakthroughs, right? This is why you go to church because you want your, your problems to be fixed. Go ahead and click. So these are some quotes... Uh, from some articles that Gideon wrote. Um, A lot of, uh, I've encouraged Gideon to write things down, write things down about the church, and so he wrote some of these articles, and these are some quotes from his articles. 80% of Malawis, Gideon, by the way, he's a pastor, and and he pastored a church plant for about 20 years, um, knows all the churches really well, and that's what makes him unique. Most guys know their denomination, but Gideon knows all the churches, and he, has right theology and right thinking. He's able to critique um, the church in Malawi, which is something most people cannot do. He's a great guy, if you didn't figure that out. 80% of Malawians are said to be Christians, right? Malawi is a Christian country. Everybody thinks they're a Christian. But you've got to understand what they mean by that, Right? Gideon says, however, the majority have not been regenerated. They're not saved. In their minds, they're Christians because they're members of churches, which just means they were born into a family that went to church, and that makes them a Christian. All right? Because they're not a Muslim. The rest of the country is Muslim. Uh, most believe that salvation is by works. All right? So you've got all these people that say they're Christians, they're in churches, but they understand salvation to be by works. Those that have been regenerated, the minority, they tend to think that salvation is by grace. That's right. But for one to remain saved, there's a need for good works. Serving God is viewed as working to maintain one's salvation. This is very much a works based salvation and a works based uh, just uh, sanctification as well. All right. So. Most people are Christians, that's what they say, but their understanding of Christianity is messed up, and a lot of people probably aren't Christians. Um, then you go ahead and you, uh, the Bible is translated in the local dialects there, but it's translated not from the original languages, but from English, and it's very loosely paraphrased, and it's, uh, um, you know, I have pastors that I've taught, we've gone through the scriptures, and they come up and they say, I need to repent because I've preached heresy because what it says in the English is not what it says in the Chichewa, right? That we are teaching them to look at the grammar, to lead the meaning out of the text. And they say, I can't do that in the original, in the Chichewa Bible, because the grammar is so poor. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't say what it says. And so it's, it's really difficult to teach men to preach the word when the uh, the translations just aren't there. Um, and so you say, what hope is there for these people? right? Because Everybody goes to church, everybody thinks there's a Christian, but they don't know the gospel. The pastor's not preaching the word. He's, he's doing these magic ceremonies to fix your problems. And even if you pick up the Bible and read it, it's so messed up that, are you going to find the gospel? Right, what hope is there for these people? Well, obviously it's Jesus Christ, and um, you know, we've gone and we've started a school there, Central African Preaching Academy, and this is what Todd was talking about earlier, the strategy of equipping the local pastors so that they can do the work of the ministry there and uh, preach the word. And that's really what we focus on. I'm not sure, this is a picture of our, our graduating class from last year from our diploma program. We have two programs at Kappa. We have a diploma, uh, which is gonna be upgraded to a bachelor's degree, and we do a master's of divinity. So the, the master's of divinity is, is just like you'd, a degree you'd get at a seminary here in the States. At the master's seminary, that's the degree I got degree Todd got. Um, The diploma is more aimed at at reaching uh, the village people, those that don't have uh, the electricity and the the power, the water, and that sort of thing. Um, They are, uh, yeah, so it's more aimed at those people, but the masters of divinity, the idea is, we want to train people at the same level that the missionaries are trained at. Right? Malawi's had missionaries for over 100 years. Why do they still have missionaries? Because everyone thinks you can't train these people at the highest level, right? They all do this low-level training out in the bush, and that's fun to do. It's, you get a lot of crowd, you take a bunch of pictures, you come back, you raise a lot of money doing that. But nobody has worked with these guys at the highest level to teach them what we know so that we can work ourselves out of a job and replace this, and that's really what we're trying to do. And everybody says, you're crazy to do that, but it's, it's working. And this is what's so fun is we've got guys that are learning the Greek and are learning the Hebrew. And they are so excited about it. How you teach grammar in in Malawi, right? This is is fun because uh, in America people are abstract. People are abstract thinkers. You don't do that in Africa. People don't think like that. It's not smart and dumb. It's just different in the way people think. And so everything has to be very concrete. Everything has to be very illustrative. Um, Americans teach Here's a definition, here's a definition. Now let me put all these definitions together in abstract thinking. But in Malawi, you just it, it won't work that way. So how do you teach grammar uh, to guys that think concretely? And, uh, and this, is, this is how you do it, real quick. So in Malawi, we have carts. Carts do not go by themselves. You need to pull them. All right? Some, you, you hook them up to a donkey, you hook them up to another car or something, you pull the cart along. That's how you make it go. Those are phrases, because phrases don't go by themselves. They have no going word, no verb, all right? Then you have minibuses, and minibuses have an engine. They go by themselves, and those we call clauses because they have going words. They have verbs, right? And so you just start with these illustrations like that, and when you do it with Greek and Hebrew, it gets a lot more complex, but you do it the same way, and they're getting it, and they all, you know, one of the things I challenge them with is, you've all come up to me and told me how poor the translation is in Shecewa. Who's going to fix it? Which one of you is going to fix that? Because I don't know Chichewa, and I can try and learn it, but you guys understand the culture and the nuances and the language so much better than I ever will. I'm going to teach you Greek and Hebrew, and I want you to go back and translate the Bible. You go back and fix all that. You go back into the villages and and do this lower-level training that all the other missionaries are doing, uh, because you can do that better than we can do it. And we challenge them with that, and they love it, and they get it, and that's all, you know, I got... 20 guys that all want to translate the Bible, and they don't realize, you know, that, <laughs> that they're not all going to be able to do that, but they're all excited about it, and it's it's a tremendous joy um, to be a part of the work there and just equip these men uh, to, to preach the Word. Um, all of our programs are focused on preaching the biblical text, and that's really what's fun, because we have guys from all these denominations, which doesn't happen. Everything is so denominational over there, but because everybody preaches, that's the one thing we have in common, so so people will come and it's, uh, we don't, you know, we're teaching and preaching, but we're also getting into their lives. Last story and then I'll stop here. Um, so I taught a class, we call it Pastor's Home. And it's really just, I go over premarital counseling. They've never had anything like this. I'm sure you're aware of it. You've probably been through it. You go buy a book on Amazon if, if you want this stuff. It's just, you know, I just go through simple things. Ephesians 5, husbands love your wife as Christ loves the church. And how does he love the church? He died for the church, right? And so, what does that implications that have on your marriage and how you care for your wife? And it's, it's just the word of God, and it's it's really simple, but yet it's difficult to do, as we all know. And these guys have never heard anything like that. Marriages in Malawi are such a mess. The husband—I mean, I could go on and on. The husband is never there. He doesn't talk. There's a Mother's Day in this culture, but there's no Father's Day because the husband's never there. Husbands will have bank accounts that they will hide from their wives, you know, because you don't, you know, you know, they just give their wife money periodically and they do all sorts of things with it that their wives don't know about. No one's involved. They make all the decisions, they don't involve their wives in them. Marriages are a mess. <clears throat> and when you start going through the Word of God and, and teaching these things, I have students that leave my classes in the middle to go call their wives and reconcile with them. And when we, we set up Uh, kappa one of the things we wanted to do we we do modules we teach for two weeks at a time and then uh, they go home for two weeks at a time then they come back for two weeks and on and off like that and it saves on costs and things and so there's a lot of good reasons to do that it doesn't take the pastors away from their churches uh, for more than one sunday a month but what we said is when they go home for a break we want them to have a sermon we, we basically equip them with a sermon so they go home and they can preach their sermon because that way the churches will keep sending them. So I, you know, we'd love them to say, I don't know what goes on at Kappa, but as long as you keep preaching like that, keep going. And I think for the most part we've done that and it's, it's been great. But what we didn't anticipate is their wives saying, I don't know what goes on at Kappa, but this is great for our marriage and so you need to keep going back. So we, um, I think it was up there earlier, Kappa, we train uh, pastors to study, practice, and teach God's Word. And I believe we're doing all that there. And so thank you for, for being a part of that with us. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for sending uh, Todd and others to, to come support us in that. appreciate it. So let me go ahead and just uh, pray, and we'll jump into the Word here. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for gracing us with a day that we did not deserve. Lord, we thank you for the rain that you gave us last night and just the reminder that you caused the rain to fall upon the righteous and the wicked. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for putting your wrath upon him instead of us. Thank you that we did not wake up in hell this morning. That's what we deserve. But We thank you for the grace and mercy that you give us for sending a Savior for, like I said, putting your wrath upon him instead of us so that we can be right with you. What a tremendous blessing and privilege that is. And we pray that we wouldn't just sit on such a great truth, but that we would share it with others, that we would proclaim your name to our neighbors, to the nations, that we would all worship and praise you. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. Every year, there are thousands of court cases. Civil, criminal, small claims. Every year, thousands of verdicts are rendered. And most have no significant impact on history. But some do. Such is the case of the Dred Scott decision, where an African-American slave sued to try and gain his freedom. Born in 1795, In Virginia, born into slavery, right? Scott was born into slavery, and he was property of the Blow family. He was later sold to John Emerson, and Dr. Emerson was a medical doctor with the United States Army. And as part of his job, he would travel to different southern states, which were slave states. And he would travel to different northern states, which were the free states. And he would take Scott with him during these travels. And so it was Scott's time in the northern states that later gave him the legal basis to to sue. Well, eventually, Dr. Emerson dies, and Scott tries to purchase his freedom from Dr. Emerson's widow, and she refuses, and so Scott sues. And after a decade of court appeals and reversals, it makes it all the way to the Supreme Court, highest authority in the land. And the Supreme Court renders a verdict. They reach a decision, and they say this, any person of African ancestry, whether slave or free, is not a citizen of the United States. Since African-Americans are not citizens, they do not possess the legal standing to bring suits to federal court. Because Scott had no standing to sue, the court lacked jurisdiction in the matter, and Scott remained a slave. Now, this verdict had far-reaching impact on our nation, though not necessarily the impact that the justices desired. In the South, were this, they were slave states, right, in the South this was hailed as a victory. But in the North, people were outraged. This verdict, it, it largely influenced Abraham Lincoln to run for the office of president and later he won that, right. This verdict ultimately led to the South's succession from the Union, the Civil War, and eventually the abolition of slavery in the United States. One verdict. Huge impact on history. I would suggest to you this morning that there is another verdict that has been rendered. And this verdict dwarfs that in comparison of the Dred Scott decision. Yet most people have never heard this verdict. Most people have never read it. Most people don't even know it exists. In Isaiah 49, we have an intra-Trinitarian discussion of monumental proportions. We have a discussion between God the Father and God the Son that takes place in eternity past. In this discussion, a verdict is rendered. And it sets all of history on its current course. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49. This is our text for this morning. Isaiah 49. While you are turning there, let me just go ahead and give you a running start. Isaiah is written to Judah. It's the southern kingdom. The kingdom of Israel has been split in the northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has been taken into captivity at this time. The first half of of the book, Isaiah tells the nation that they are in sin. That judgment is coming. And if you do not repent, then just like the northern kingdom, you too will be taken into captivity. And the second half of the book looks forward to their captivity. It looks to the future and addresses the nation while they're in exile and tells them, God has not given up on you. that there is still hope. And there's this This salvation theme, this thread of salvation that runs through the book. Chapter 7 talks about a child manual, meaning God is with us. This child will be born of a virgin. Chapter 9, it says the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Chapter 11, it says that he will reign, he will judge not by what his eyes see or what his ears hear, but he will judge in righteousness. He will judge righteously, unlike the leaders of today. That when he reigns, that there will be Eden-like conditions where the lion and lamb will, reign, will lay down together. Chapter 40, it tells us that there will be a forerunner that will come and precede him. And that We just read about it earlier in chapter 59, that he will redeem the nation. And there's that theme, there's these four what have been called servant songs that talk about this servant that will come from God and this servant will be the instrument that God uses to redeem the nation. The most well-known one is the fourth. Chapter 53 says he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Well, this morning, I want to look at the second servant song. This servant song, it talks about the servant's mission, what he was sent to do. This has been called the Great Commission of the Old Testament. And I believe these words are the heartbeat behind Jesus' words. In Matthew 28, where he tells us to go and preach to all nations. So let's, let's jump in here. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6, we see three commitments. Three commitments of the Lord's servant that should move us to fulfill the Great Commission. If you're taking notes this morning, that is my outline. It's, it's printed for you in the bulletin. Three commitments of the Lord's servant that should move us to fulfill the great commission. We see three commitments of Christ. This should be our commitments as well. This text is Christ's commission from which our commission flows. Christ is commissioned to be the good news. We are commissioned to tell the good news. Christ is commissioned to provide salvation. We are commissioned to tell of that salvation. So the first commitment, let's look at that together, is a commitment to God's glory. We see this in verses 1 through 3. A commitment to God's glory. This is the servant speaking. This is the second member of the Trinity. He says this in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, And give attention, you peoples from afar. Now this word coastlands, it refers to people in remote areas. And so when you take that, people in remote areas, the second part there, you peoples from afar, we're talking about the worldwide Gentile audience. These are the enemies of Israel. Now this is significant because we're in a prophecy that is given to the nation of Judah we are in a servant song which is talking about how God is going to redeem the people of Israel. And here it's addressed, these words are addressed, to the nations. And he gives two commands. He says, listen, give attention. What I'm about to say is of utmost importance such that even the enemies of Israel need to hear this. He says, the Lord Called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. When it says name my name, it's not saying that he gave me a name. This is like uh, appointing someone to an office. This is when the president names the secretary of state. From the moment of conception, Jesus had a job to do. Right? Everything in his life was used to prepare him. His job. He didn't just wake up one morning and say, Hey, I think I'll save the world. No. Before there were sinners, there was a savior. Before there was sin, there was a plan for salvation, such that when the Christmas story happened, the Easter story was guaranteed. Chapter or verse 5 says, He was formed from the womb. To be his servant. Everything in his development from the womb, through his life, through his adulthood, was all designed by God to prepare the servant for his task. Verse 2. He, God, has made my mouth like a sharp sword. You skip down. He says, he made me a polished arrow. Here he likens himself to weapons of warfare. The sword is used for for close combat, and the the arrow is for distant combat, right? So he is prepared for all situations. He is a a sharp sword. He is a a polished arrow. The idea here is that it's it's rubbed free. This arrowhead is rubbed free from any defect that would keep it from staying on course. But he is not, his weapons are not a sword in an arrow, right? It's a a comparison. He says, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword and polished arrow. His weapons are his words. When Jesus came at his first coming, he engaged in battle with his words. right? The religious leaders, they tried to trap him. They asked him all sorts of questions to try and trick him and he answered every single one. Not only he answered them, but he asked them questions back such that He exposed their sin and hypocrisy to such a degree that they tried to kill him. With his words, he preached repentance and forgiveness of sins. With his words, he healed the sick. He cast out demons, called the dead back to life. Think of the story with the paralytic, where his friends lower the, the, the paralyzed guy, take off the roof, they lower him through the ceiling right before Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. But, so that people will know that I have the authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. And he picks up his mat and walks out of there. Isaiah tells us, chapter 50, that he sustains the weary with a word. At his second coming, chapter 11 says, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, whew, he will slay the wicked. If you look back at verse two to the parts I skipped, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. This, in the shadow of his hand, this phrase, it, it, it's just something that's shadowed by your hand, right? He is a, a sharp sword, but he's not out in the open. He's tucked away, hidden behind the hand. He's a polished arrow, but he's in a quiver, right? Ready for battle, but not out. He's hidden away, waiting for the right moment to be revealed. Look at verse 3 here father now speaks the father speaks to the son and he says you are my servant israel in whom i will be glorified you say hold on here he's called israel i thought you said that this was the second member of the tree this is christ right why is he called israel here he cannot be the nation the servant cannot be the nation because in verse 5 it says that his ministry is to the nation right Christ here is called Israel because he's the ideal Israel. He's the ultimate seed of Abraham. He will succeed where the nation has failed. But all of this readiness, all of this purpose, all of this sharpening, all of this hidden away for the right woman, everything we've seen so far, here's the purpose. Right? You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. All of it climaxes in the glory of God. Christ lived for the glory of God. And we too are to live for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5.9, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, to please God. Is your life characterized by a pursuit of self or eternal things? What do you devote your time, your resources, your money, what do you devote those things to? Do you factor God into the equation? Now, this is a well-taught church. I know you know this. This is a Sunday school answer, right? But I think we can know this and only semi-do it, right? We, We live to the glory of God in some ways, but in other ways we don't, half-heartedly living to the glory of God. Chuck Swindoll tells a story of a, a man and a woman who go to this uh, fast food restaurant, and they order lunch. And they, um, they go through the takeout, they order lunch. It's a, it's a chicken place, and the manager from the store has taken the proceeds for the day, and he's put them in a takeout box. The idea is he's trying to camouflage them so he can take them to the bank later and deposit them. And they accidentally give this takeout box of money to the man and the woman. And they drive off to the park and sit down to enjoy their lunch and they open it up and oh wow. Right? The man sees it and he says, Well, this, this must have been a mistake. And he takes the money, he goes back to the store and returns it. And the manager is ecstatic. He can't believe what has happened. And he says, Hold on a second. Stick around. I've got to call the newspaper. They've got to come out here, write this up, take your picture, put it in the, st- in the paper. People need to know that there are honest people still around. The man says, oh, no, no, no. Don't do that. You can't do that. Well, why not, says the manager. So as we see, I'm married. And the woman I'm with is not my wife. Half-heartedly living to the glory of God. Are you half-heartedly living to the glory of God? Do you have areas in your life where you're honoring the Lord, but other areas where you are not? Do you compartmentalize? Do you have things that are not given over to God? Is your life completely pleasing to him? 1 Kings 3 says, Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David, except, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Is there an except in your life? Are you committed to God's glory? It's the first commitment of the Lord's servant that should move us to fulfill the great commission. The second is a commitment to resting faith. We see this in verse 4, a commitment to resting faith. Here the son replies to the father. Verse 4, he says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Now you think with an introduction like this servant had gotten, that it would be one long triumphal march to victory. But that's not what happens. After three years of ministry, the religious leaders, they reject him. right? They hate him, and they want to put him to death. The crowds are fickle. They ultimately side with the religious leaders. All he has to show for his ministry is a small group of disciples. One of them betrays him, and the others abandon him when it matters most. Verse seven. He is called the despised one, the one abhorred by the nation. John 1 says he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He has labored to the point of exhaustion. He has wearied himself and gotten nowhere. It all seems fruitless, right? What has he achieved? It seems like nothing. It's like a a vapor on a cup of coffee. There for a moment And then gone. Before I went to to Malawi, I was an engineer. And in college, that's what I studied engineering. And I had a group of uh, study buddies is what we called ourselves. Just a group of guys that I would study with very regularly. And uh, you get very close to these people, going through school with them, going through all that. And I, I was pretty vocal with my faith. I shared the gospel with all these guys. And most weren't very interested. But there was one guy in particular who was and we would talk for hours and hours every week and i shared the gospel with him i talked about living the christian life it got to the point where he could answer my questions he could answer his own questions the way i would answer them right he he knew the gospel i would even catch him you know talking to other other friends of ours and he would say well you know gosh jim would say this and he would you know share the gospel or he would talk about how to live the christian life or different things and um And I was praying, Lord, finish what you've started. Bring this guy to salvation. And finally he comes back after a Christmas break, and he says, I believe. I'm there. I'm a Christian. And I was excited. I was ecstatic. And we kept talking, and we kept discipling him. And then about a year later, he walks away. Sorry, Jim, I just don't believe anymore. And I agonized over that. I would spent three years of my life investing in him. And ultimately, same place as my friends who rejected from day one. Why? Three years. Why so close for nothing? Why didn't he just reject it in the first place? You ever felt like that? You ever felt like your ministry efforts were fruitless or not getting anywhere? You share the gospel with someone and they reject it? You you do a Bible study or some sort of ministry and no one's appreciative. You see no growth. Our Savior felt it too. Our Savior felt it too. He knew what that was like. And if you keep reading here in verse 4, he says, Yet surely my right hand, literally the justice do me, is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. This word recompense is what is rightly due me. It's what's deserved. And the picture here is an appeals process. He has been denied justice. And he appeals all the way to the highest authority, to God himself, and he says, God is my judge, there is no other. He turns his perception from the things around him, what seems like wasted effort, and he puts his focus on the Lord where it should be. You look at the, the end of verse 5 here. He says, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. This, this word honored, it, it's the idea of heavy, weighed down. If you, if you took scales, you took a balance, right, and you put the Lord on one side, you put you know, the Lord's view of you on one side, it weighs down here. He has moved from the temporal to the eternal. He has turned his eyes from the dark shadow of the cross to the brilliant splendor of the crown. He has moved from perception, right? I've done this work and it seems wasted. No results. And he's put them on God and now he's able to face life. And with his renewed strength, he's able to continue in ministry. He has cured his feelings of futility with resting faith. And this is, this was my fault with my friend, my my study buddy, right, is I was so focused on the results. He didn't become a Christian. My efforts were wasted. I wasn't focused, was I faithful? I wasn't focused on, was I proclaiming the gospel? I did what's required of me. I was honoring the Lord in that sense. Ministry has its ups and downs. There will be times when you are ministering to, to children, to adults, sharing the gospel, doing Bible studies, whatever, and you don't see any tangible results. Don't let that discourage you. We are not required to produce tangible results. In fact, we can't. That's the Holy Spirit, right? He's the one who causes the conversion. He's the one who causes the growth. We are to be faithful with the task that is before us. Are you being faithful to what the Lord has called you to, to where he has put you? This isn't rocket science. You know this. The Lord, Jesus, the servant knew this. But it's easy to forget it when we go about our daily business when we're serving. And so we need to stop ourselves. We need to redirect our focus to what matters most. Now turn it around. right? Why? Why should I bring up the gospel when I know that this person is going to reject it, they're not interested, should I really risk sharing the gospel? Yes. Because there's an eternal value to the work. We should share the gospel because someday you're going to stand before the Lord and give an account for your life and how you used it and what you did. We should share the gospel because Christ has died for all people. And he deserves the recognition for his work. We need to share others about it. It's so our second commitment that we see in the text, our second commitment, second commitment of Christ that should be ours as well. Now, so far, everything that we've looked at is great reminders for missions work. But there's nothing here that's unique about missions work. Why do I call this a missions message? Right. This applies to all of ministry in general, but this is where it all changes. All right. So put your seatbelts on. This is where this becomes a missions message. This is where we see that verdict that changes all of history. In this last commitment, right, a commitment to all nations. We see this in verses five and six. A commitment to all nations. And now. The Lord says, all this description about the Lord, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and God has become my strength. Now look back here at the middle of this, right? It says, formed me from the womb, right? The servant from the womb has been prepared for this mission. What mission? To bring Jacob back to To him. Notice the to him. We're not talking about bringing them back to the land. Right? That's important. But we're talking about bringing them back to God. Why were they sent into captivity? Because of their sin. And now we're going to deal with the root issue. We're going to deal with the sin problem. The servant, Isaiah 53, right? We looked at that one earlier. He's going to take the sin of the nation and put it upon himself. He is going to die for their sin, pierce through for their transgressions, crushed for their iniquity so that they can be right with God. Verse 6. This is unthinkable. This is incredible. Verse 6. It is too light, too light, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's too light. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Here God takes the mission and he expands it. All right? It's too light a thing that you would just save Israel. Now we need to go to the nations and save everyone. This is this is crazy. This is the same mission that the servant was struggling with just a couple of verses ago. And now we've taken it and we've expanded it. This is like running a half marathon, 13 miles. And you're on mile eight and you're dying. You're grasping for breath. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. And suddenly there's an announcement uh, We've just extended the race from 13 miles to 26. What on earth? Why would you do this? Because the original mission it's too insignificant. It's too puny. It's too small, it's too light a thing. The God who perfectly prepared the servant for this mission is now saying that the mission is too light a thing to manifest the true value, the true weight of the servant. 1992, A.M. General began selling a civilian version of its Humvee military jeep. Off-road vehicle of epic proportions designed for military combat and travel over the roughest terrain in the world. The civilian version, named the Hummer, included a 6.5 liter liter, turbo diesel V8 engine, producing 300 horsepower and 520 foot-pounds of torque at approximately 9 miles per gallon. Passenger and highway comfort were sacrificed for maximum mobility compared to civilian SUVs. And as a result, the Hummer could ford water waist-deep. could climb a 22-inch step, and it had stock ground clearance of 16 inches. On top of this, Hummers were equipped with a central tire inflation system, which enabled the driver to increase or decrease the tire pressure at will. So you go off-road, you lower the the tire pressure so you get better traction, you go back on it, you increase the pressure so that you get better mileage. Rather than using uh, simple run-flat tires, which just allowed you to keep going after your your tire got flat, they had aluminum or rubber inserts available so that if your tires got shot out, you could still drive. Unfortunately, chemical warfare-resistant paint was only available on the military version. All sorts of features, yet most of these features were never used. Hummers were sold to celebrities, to the very rich, those that could afford the $100,000 price tag. They were driven to parties. They hogged multiple parking places. They became look-at-me cars, right? Look at me, I drive a Hummer. A Hummer can function as a car. What a pitiful existence for such a specialized piece of machinery. It doesn't manifest its true worth. It's too light a thing. The Hummer, it needs to be taken off-road. It needs to climb mountains. It needs to forge rivers. It needs to tackle uneven terrain to show the full glory of the Hummer. Likewise, a great Savior is shown to be great by accomplishing a great salvation. A great Savior is shown to be great by accomplishing a great salvation. If the servant only accomplished his mission to Israel, then he would be thought of as a, a tribal Savior sent by a tribal deity. The servant needs a mission greater a greater mission because the value of his blood is beyond the ransom of Israel alone. Heaven, Revelation 5, says they sing a song to Jesus. They sing, you were slain. You purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The goal of missions is not, the goal here is not to win as many people as possible from the most responsive people group. The goal is to win people from all people groups because that displays the glory of God. It's not quantity, it's diversity because that displays the value of the servant. People ask, why do you got to go to Africa? Why not train people here in the States? People here in the States need to be trained, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. We need that work. You need to share the gospel with your neighbor. They're lost. People need to go to Africa. People need to go to Muslim countries. People need to go bring the gospel around this world. Partially because we're commanded to do it. Matthew 28, Jesus tells us, to go take the gospel to the nations. But more so than that, it's not just a simple command. The glory of God is at stake. The value of the servant is at stake by us going to the nations. God is glorified through diversity. How is this? Piper, his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he gives uh, four reasons, four hows, if you want to call them that, right? How the glory of God is, is magnified through diversity. First one, he says, worship that comes from unity and diversity is greater than that which comes from unity alone. Think of a a choir that is singing. They can all sing the same melody, and it sounds good. But if they sing in parts, and you have all those different parts that come together for one song, it sounds greater. Two, the greatness of an object increases in proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its beauty. My daughter can draw a picture. And I can look at this picture and go, this is great. And I can put it up on my, my wall in my, my office. And people come in and look at that. And go, oh, it's my daughter. she drew. Oh, okay, got it, right? It's one thing if I recognize it. It's another thing if you have the Mona Lisa. And it's on display in a museum. And people from all over the world come and look at it and say, that's a great painting. Number three, the wisdom of a leader is magnified in proportion to the diversity of people he can inspire to follow him with joy. It's one thing if I'm an engineer and I manage a team and I get a group of six people who are all engineers to go along with what I'm saying and they think it's a good idea. It's another thing if you're the president of a nation and all the people go along with you and think it's a good idea, right? That displays much greater leadership ability. Number four, diversity, um, it undercuts pride by putting the focus of our salvation on God's grace rather than our racial distinctions. There's nothing about me, it's nothing about where I came from, but God and God alone. All right. We need to be interested in the nations. We need to be interested in what God is interested in. right? We need to get out of. The community of Redlands and think beyond city borders here. We need to think about the world because God does. All right Now some of you, some of you might need to go. All right? And if that's you, if you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking about that for any reason, talk to Todd, talk to your elders. let them shepherd you in working through that. But most of you are not going to go. Most of you are going to stay where you're at, and that's a good thing, all right? Don't look down on that. Don't feel like you're second class or anything like that. That's a good thing, but the key is you need to have a global perspective while you're doing it. You need to partner with those that are going, and one way that you have the opportunity to partner is in prayer, and I want to Just camp there for a second because there's a tremendous lesson in this text on prayer. We need to learn to pray with God's priority. We need to learn to pray, God, it is too light a thing that Christ would be honored in the American church. May the value of your servant be known among the nations as well. It is too small a thing that I would be the only worshiper of you in my workplace, the only worshiper of you in my family. For the sake of your son, save my dad. For the sake of your son, save my boss. So that Christ may not be belittled, so that he may get the glory that he deserves. It is too light a thing That I would be saved only to repeat the same sin again and again and again. What glory does that give to your son? Deliver me from this sin that Christ would get the honor that he deserves in my life. We need to learn to pray like that. If I can, if I can ask you to pray for us in the work that we are doing, pray like that. There's a a quote in your bulletin. I think we've got it on a slide up here. It's a long quote, so that's why I've given it to you. But I want you to read this. Read along with me silently as I read it. This is a quote by a missionary uh, who, who is in China. And he writes back to England, to his supporters. And he says, I am feeling more and more that it is, after all, just the prayers of God's people that may call down blessing upon the work whether they are directly engaged in it or not. Paul may plant, Apollos may water, but it is God who gives the increase. And this increase can be brought down from heaven by believing prayer, whether offered in China or in England. We are, as it were, God's agents, used by him to do his work, not ours. We do our part and then can only look to him with others for his blessing. If this is so which it is, then Christians at home can do as much for foreign missions as those actually on the field. That's a tremendous thought there. I believe it will only be known by the, on the last day how much has been accomplished in missionary work by the prayers of earnest believers at home. And this surely is the heart of the problem. Such work does not consist in curio exhibitions and lantern lectures and interesting reports and so on. Good as those things are, These are only the fringe, not the root of the matter. Solid, lasting missionary work is done on our knees. What I covet more than anything else is earnest, believing prayer, and I write to ask you to continue in prayer for me and the work here. And I would echo that, and I would say what we covet more than anything is your prayers, and your prayers have tremendous opportunity, that the work that we are doing stands on praying saints. And so we would ask for you to pray with us. Let me just give you a very practical suggestion is sign up for newsletters. Sign up for newsletters of missionaries. They share prayer requests. Even if they don't, they share what's going on and you can get prayer requests from those. And you have home groups, right? I forget what they're called. What are they called? Family groups. You meet in different people's homes. And you go around and you pray for people. You share prayer requests. But you can share prayer requests for missionaries. Spend time sharing, you know, have a person in your group who's a representative who updates you on the missionaries. If you want to do Malawi, that's great. Somebody pray for the Cop family. Some group do the temples. Some group do our family. You can do different groups. You can do them all, whatever. Share what's going on, like these people are a part of your family group. And then spend time praying for them. Just, just make it a part of those things. In this text, we have a conversation between God the Father and God the Son that takes place in eternity past. And if we were to go to heaven this morning, I promise you that they would be just as stuck on the same topic now as they were then because they're consumed by it. And the question is, are you consumed by it as well? Does the thought of bringing glory to God by reaching the nations? Is it something that bounces around in your heart like a fly trying to get out of a jar? Or is it something that is just a nice thought? Because if it's the latter, you need to identify your spiritual unmotivations and repent. Missions is not just something that's trendy, that's great to be a part of. It's not a a neat app on your spiritual iPhone. It should consume us. If it consumed the king, it should consume his servants. If it consumed Christ, it should consume you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for its applicability, for its reference for us today. And I I hear a message like this, and it's, I pray that it would be true, that we would be consumed by missions Lord, I'm sure there's not a person in this room that would think missions is a bad thing. But I pray that we would work to make this a part of our lives, to pray for missionaries, to partner with them. We pray that your gospel, that you would be proclaimed among the nations, that there would be a tribe, a group of worshipers from every people that's praising your name so that you would get the glory you deserve. May the Lamb receive the glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.